Our sermon today is from Psalm 130. We're going to read that now. These are God's words. A song of ascent. Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. You can take your seats. So I've preached through the first six verses of the psalm to this point, and today we are going to consider the final two. And then we see Israel being given an instruction or command and three reasons or supports for why they should obey this instruction. Let's read the last two verses again, and I'll point out these details. It says, O Israel, wait for Yahweh. So that is the big instruction given to Israel, to wait on Yahweh. Four, this is why they ought to wait, or a support for waiting. First reason, with Yahweh there is loving kindness. And second reason, with him is abundant redemption. And third reason, it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So first let's consider the instruction. We addressed what the nature of this waiting on the Lord was in my previous sermon. The Bible tells us of a number of things that Christians should wait upon the Lord for. But in this psalm, we know from the context that Israel is being called to wait for their final redemption, for the forgiveness of their sins. Though they knew God was forgiving, they were waiting to see how God's forgiveness would pan out. We've covered that already. Their offerings of bulls and goats would not suffice. Those things could not truly atone for sin. They were placeholders for what would have to be a better sacrifice, a human sacrifice, a spotless, sinless sacrifice that could truly bear human guilt. So they were instructed to wait in hope, trusting in God's word with full assurance that salvation would come. As we pointed out last week, thousands of years later, we see how Christ secured this forgiveness for us through the sacrifice of himself. 1 John 2.2, 2. he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And now that we see it, we sing, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. After giving this instruction to wait, as I said earlier, the psalmist gives Israel three reasons to obey this instruction. Now, I think the weight of these supports is pretty self-evident, Let's briefly consider them anyway. Uh, the first reason Israel should wait is because with Yahweh, there is loving kindness. Now that is a beautiful truth and a strong support for waiting on God, that he is full of loving kindness. We could spend a whole heap of time meditating on God's loving kindness, but I'm pressed for time today. And as I said, I think this reasoning is pretty self-evident. He is appealing to the character of God. We should wait with confidence because with God there is loving kindness. 
The second reason is similar. Israel should wait because with him is abundant redemption. Here the psalmist is appealing to the extent or reach of God's redeeming work. It is abundant. Abundant means plentiful. He is a God of abundant grace, of love that is vast beyond all measure. So putting the first two reasons together, we could say that his boundless love is manifest over time through an abundant redemption. And the third reason is similar again. Israel ought to wait with confidence because it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I think the emphasis here is on the he, who the redeemer is. The psalmist stirs up confidence by pointing to the one who will do the redeeming. It is God himself that will redeem you. This adds significant rational support for waiting on Yahweh. But there is a problem here in the text. I wonder if this problem occurred to you as we were reading these verses this morning. Paul deemed this problem worthy of three chapters of the book of Romans. What is it? Israel, the covenant people of God, the ones who without a doubt sung this song, rejected their Messiah. Israel did not experience the abundant redemption that was promised to them, to Israel. So the psalmist supports his call to wait with the fact that God himself will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. And how can that be true? It has to be true. How can the psalm be for the nation of Israel when the vast majority of them did not continue in God's covenant? In Jeremiah 31 it says, speaking of the old covenant people, I did not care for them, says the Lord. And this was because Israel did not continue in the covenant. So you see the problem. So today my main goal will be to answer this problem. How is it true that Israel will be redeemed from all his iniquity? Now I've said before that good preaching should preach what is given to them in the text and not qualify away the plain meaning of the biblical author's words. So I want to acknowledge that it could sound as though I'm about to break my own principles here, but don't get me wrong, I think we should plainly believe the redemption promised to Israel here. We should believe that it will happen, we should apply it to ourselves, and any hearer should bank on this truth being fulfilled, and it will show this in time with my interpretation. But what I think is necessary, particularly today, is to define Israel, or the covenant people of God, properly. I don't think a proper understanding of Israel is a given, particularly in our predominantly Baptistic church culture today. And I know that many of you have already heard me say a bunch of the things that you can probably see on those printouts that I've got there. Uh, Please bear with me. I do think that you're going to glean some new things today. And I think that going over these things again will help you solidify your understanding of covenant theology. So today we're going to consider who Israel is and how we should read other passages like this one that promise a full redemption for Israel. There are many answers given to the questions that I posed, many theological streams of thought, and we will touch on a few of them as we go. But with every theological stream, there are certain New Testament passages that every interpreter has to deal with. 
One of the main ones is chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. This is where Paul deals with the problem that our psalm raises today. That abundant redemption was promised to Israel, but they have not yet experienced it. So let's read from Romans 9 now and see how Paul addresses this issue, starting with verse 1. And you'll have that passage in your printout. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is the key bit, guys. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your seed will be named. So Paul teaches here that there is an Israel within Israel. He refers to two groups with the same name, Israel. Now I've drawn you a few pictures today, which you've seen already. Could you please look at figure one now? This represents what Paul is saying. Not all Israel, that is outer circle Israel, are Israel, that is inner circle Israel. So we have two Israels, outer circle Israel and inner circle Israel. So Paul is teaching that within the covenant people of God, Israel, there is another people, and this group are the elect of Israel. You could say that there is a covenant people, Israel, and an elect people, Israel. But even this doesn't quite explain it. Covenant Israel are also called the elect in Scripture. For example, in Romans 11, a couple chapters on, it says in verse 28, As regard the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So two chapters on, Paul refers to the covenant people of Israel who are enemies of the gospel as the elect, even beloved that means that calling the two groups covenant Israel and elect Israel doesn't quite work as well. So from now on, I'm going to refer to the two Israels mentioned in Romans 9 as outer circle Israel and inner circle Israel. And hopefully the pictures on your sheet will help you understand what I mean as I refer to them. It's not like a technical way of talking about them, but it's just so you can have handles. Now, within the world of Reformed theology, these two circles are typically called the visible and invisible church. What you see of the covenant people of God is the visible church. That is the circumcised people of Israel or the baptized people of the church. They are not necessarily saved, but they are the visible church. They are what you see. They are the outer circle Israel. The Reformed Baptists use the visible-invisible distinction too, but they would see the covenant realities differently. They wouldn't equate the visible church with the outer circle Israel that Paul refers to. You will see why this is important when we consider their view shortly. The important thing for us to consider now, though, 
is how this, in, this visible, invisible distinction affects your reading of Scripture. When both Baptists and Presbyterians apply it to passages like our one today, some weird things can happen. For example, when it says in our last verse, it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, they will assert that this, is mention, this Israel mentioned there must be the invisible one, the inner circle Israel, the elect of God. Because how could God in any way redeem a non-elect person from their iniquities? Many in outer circle Israel will not be redeemed. But when the psalmist calls Israel to wait on Yahweh a little earlier in the psalm, they have to say, that can't be for the elect only, for inner circle Israel only. All Israel were called to wait on Yahweh. It was clearly their song, outer circle Israel, and there was a command in it for them. So in this case, the Israel being called to obedience must be the outer circle Israel, or you could say the visible church. And this principle has to be applied all over the Bible. Following this visible, invisible theological distinction, you end up jumping between definitions all over the place. As I said, Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians both do this. Typically, they apply the covenantal passages that refer to God forgiving sins to the inner circle Israel only. And then with passages referring to corporate realities, that is blessings and cursings of the law, the land promises, national judgments, and things like that, they apply them to outer circle Israel. To put it lightly, I think there are problems with this approach. Would a God of truth be into a kind of definitional switcheroo? Ah, uh, 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 you thought I meant Israel, but what I meant was Israel. We wouldn't let people get away with that if we were talking to people. There's a better way of understanding Israel that doesn't require working out whether it was the invisible one or the visible one that they're referring to. What Paul said about there being an inner and outer circle to Israel is true, but I think his only point was to show that Israel was always a mixed body. The distinction he made between elect and non-elect members didn't change who the promises were to. Remember in chapter 9, which we've just read, Paul said that to Israel, the ones who rejected the Messiah belonged the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Those things belonged to outer circle Israel, but they failed to obtain them because of unbelief. This being the case, I think we should always consider Israel as one thing, a covenant body, a corporate reality that God is working with and through over time. Before I explain and defend my position further, let's take a brief look at the Reformed Baptist's attempt at solving the Israel dilemma. As I said, they maintain the visible and visible distinction, but they cut up the covenants differently. They would say there is no covenantal relationship in operation today with the non-elect. While there were non-elect members in the old covenant, there are no non-elect in the new covenant. So there is no such thing as a non-elect covenant member today. So look at figure two on your printout to help you conceptualize this. There is one circle after Christ's first coming. I'm going to elaborate on this 
more. Under their framework, while the new covenant is new in some sense, in essence, all that will be saved from the old covenant time until now are saved under new covenant realities. The Old Testament saints are brought into these new covenant realities. They have a new covenant mediator, a new covenant sacrifice, a new covenant high priest, etc. And obviously much of this is true. But they would also say that the old covenant structure was a temporary thing that God used to bring about the true essence of what could be called an overarching covenant of grace. Outer circle Israel was what God used to bring about a full and mature understanding of salvation. So now with the arrival of the new covenant, the category of an outer circle is done away with and the inner circle is all that matters now. So you can see how I've tried to betray that in my picture that you've got there. Two circles transition to one at Christ's coming and this circle is only composed of elect members. Baptists would draw this understanding from a few places, but mainly from Hebrews 8. So we're going to read a large section of that chapter now. And I want to say, I agree with the Baptists that this passage is important for understanding the new covenant. Of course it is. How could you not? But you'll also see that I'd even lean into some of the things that they challenge most Presbyterians with too. We're not going to let the Presbyterians off the hook. Let's read the, uh, the passage and then explain, and then I'll explain what I'm talking about. So beginning at verse 6. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second, for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. And upon their hearts I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, where to start? First, I'll point out the parts of this passage that the Baptists will emphasize. The new covenant people will have God's law placed in their minds and hearts. God will do this. And the effect will be that no one will need a teacher. No one has to tell his church-going neighbor, the guy sitting next to him in the pews, know the Lord because he already knows him. But putting it this way isn't actually quite accurate. The people of the new covenant are invisible. So you can't know that the guy next to you in the pews with you is actually a covenant member. But hypothetically, if you could know who was in the covenant, you wouldn't have to convert them or say, know the Lord. All members of the new covenant know him from the least to the greatest. 
added or connected to this knowledge of the Lord is the forgiveness of sins. This is clearly in the text. In the same way that Psalm 130 says that Israel will be redeemed from all his iniquities, Hebrews 8 says that the new covenant people will be forgiven of all their sins. So the Baptists say, putting Psalm 130 and Hebrews 8 together, that we should understand the Israel of Psalm 130 to be inner circle Israel, the elect, those who would be saved through Christ under new covenant realities. So what's the problem with this interpretation? It seems to be taking the text seriously, doesn't it? Particularly the extent of God's abundant redemption for inner circle Israel. First, let me point out a few details that I don't think Baptists are adequately accounting for from Hebrews 8. I'm not just picking on the Baptists here, like I've said. I'm going to press the Presbyterians, of which I am one, on the details of this passage soon. So first, regarding the Baptist position, I want to point out that the new covenant described in Hebrews 8 is made without a circle Israel. The same people that the first covenant was made with, whose fathers disobeyed, the same people who failed to continue in that first covenant. Verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. The house of Israel mentioned here was the same house or body mentioned in the previous verses that did not continue in God's first covenant. The second or new covenant is made with the same people who failed to obey the first the difference is, in the new co- this new covenant, this is key, God will cause the outer circle Israel to obey, putting his law on their minds and on their hearts. Baptists would have to argue that the new covenant is somehow better because the outer circle is done away with. Of course, they would say that the new covenant is better for many other reasons as well, but think about it. This bitterness of making a covenant with the elect only achieves nothing. There were elect before the new covenant came. The Baptist conception of the new covenant does nothing but remove a previous distinction. All Israel is now Israel. That's not really making anything better. It's just redefining or narrowing down covenant membership is actually redefining what covenants are and who God makes them with. Remember God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. An everlasting covenant. So how is the new covenant better if under it your offspring are not included? You could be elect and have your children under the covenant in the old. Under the new, the elect are still there, but without their households. Wouldn't it be better if your children were still included in the covenant and they were also converted? This is actually what the Bible says is better about the new covenant. It says in Isaiah 59 of the new covenant, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh, My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your seed, nor from the mouth of your seed's seed, says Yahweh, from now and forever. Praise God. This is the age we're in now. 
while Israel, under the old covenant, was marked by generational discontinuity and unfaithfulness, the new will be marked with generational continuity and faithfulness. For this to be the case, the membership has to remain the same. It has to be generational. Households must be included. The new covenant is made with outer circle Israel, not merely inner circle elect Israel. So that's the first thing that the Baptists do not sufficiently account for in Hebrews 8. It is made with outer circle Israel. Now, I realize that this is all very theoretical and possibly hard going for some of you at the moment, but I promise I'll try to make it land briefly in practical ways at the end. So just please bear with me. The second thing I want to point from Hebrews 8 that I think the Baptists miss is that in the New Covenant, Outer circle Israel is converted. I've touched on this a bit already with the children of the covenant from Isaiah 59, that they will be converted. But Hebrews 8 says the new covenant is not better merely because non-believing covenant members were cut off. The covenant people are made a better people because of the activity of God through a superior ministry. Verse 8 says, But now he, that is Christ, this is at the start of this, um, the new covenant, he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Now it is true that many members of outer Israel were cut off around the first coming of Christ. Romans 11 explains this major change to the membership of the covenant people. Natural branches were cut off. And their cutting off was sealed through a change of the means of covenant inclusion. The natural branches of the old covenant were included in the covenant by circumcision. All members of the new covenant, whether they are natural branches or wild ones, were included by baptism. So all unbaptized natural branches were in a sense naturally cut off. And many of them were. But many were included too. Paul being one of them. But the cutting off of covenant members is not how the new covenant is characterized in Hebrews 8. It is characterized by a better ministry that converts the members of the house of Israel by putting his law on their hearts and minds. All this being said, I think the main thing that is being missed by the Baptists is the nature of covenant bodies. And the idea of corporate or collective sanctification. And this is really where it lands. Bodies can be sanctified too. The body of Christ certainly is. Either by individuals coming to Christ within the covenant and growing in the knowledge of him. Or by faithless covenant members being removed. In general, Baptists believe salvation can only be understood as something for individuals. Israel, or the church, can't be sanctified because they are not individuals. But sanctification is also one of those fractal truths. It is seen in more things than a regenerate individual. As more members of nations become Christians, it will exalt that nation. Their laws will be sanctified. The peace of that nation will increase. When a father becomes a Christian, the household will improve, whether the other members are converted or not, because of the way he rules. That can happen even for a lower member of the house. 
The same goes with a business, a university, or a lump of dough. Holiness cannot help but permeate from the ones who have it to those who are around them. This idea of corporate sanctification of the house of Israel is what God and the writer of Hebrews had in mind in, chapters, in chapter 8 of Hebrews. It lays out new covenant realities that would be worked out over time as Israel reached its maturity. Israel will be sanctified to the point where no teacher will be needed. But that is obviously not where the house of Israel was in Paul's day or in ours now. So I consider Paul to be the writer of the book of Hebrews. Um, Consider what he says in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, and this is presumably to New Covenant members, New Covenant Christians. In verse 11 it says, Concerning him, that is Melchizedek, we have much to say and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So the one who would say later in chapter 8 that the new covenant people would not need teachers is saying here, three chapters earlier, that they need someone to teach the elementary principles of the oracles of God. But how can that square with the Baptist understanding of chapter 8? Not easily, or naturally, I would say. I think the most simple and obvious answer to this is that Hebrews 8 is talking about eschatological realities. New covenant realities that were yet to be worked out, but would be in time. So, the Baptists are right to say that outer circle Israel will be something like inner circle Israel in the new covenant, but they get the timing of its fulfillment wrong. It is something that must be worked out through corporate sanctification, through Christ, and the application of a better new covenant ministry. Anyway, that's enough picking on the Baptists. Where do the Presbyterians typically get the new covenant wrong? Well, most of them are not post-millennial. They would agree that the new covenant is made with the house of Israel, or outer circle Israel, and that the nature of the covenant doesn't change, they would agree that Israel in New Testament times is made up of elect and non-elect members, and that children should be included. But they do not adequately account for the details of the new covenant that the Baptists rightly press. If Israel is to receive an abundant redemption, one where, at some point, no one will need a teacher, for all will know the Lord, how does that square with the covenant as they see it now, and how does it square with where they see the covenant going? Most Presbyterians do not teach that outer circle Israel will be converted. They teach that when the Son of Man comes, he won't find much faith in the earth. The visible church is doomed to apostasy and fracture, and that in the end, the remnant will be something like unto the few that God kept in Elijah's day under the old covenant. The truth is, post-millennialism rescues covenant theology from the Baptists and the Armillennials. Neither of them harmonize the bitterness of the new covenant ministry and the nature of covenant bodies well. So let's step right back at this point. 
let me plainly explain as best I can what I am seeing going on here. Let me explain what a post-millennial covenant theology looks like and then briefly, emphasize briefly, tell you why it matters and apply it. Look at figure three on your sheets, please. When the Bible refers to Israel, the covenant people, it is always referring to the same thing, a body, a corporate reality. That body that began with Abraham and his seed, God promised to own and keep. He would be their God and they would be his people. And that same body he promised to forgive in time. He would give them abundant redemption, not to every individual member at all times, obviously, but to the body over time. God would cause the descendants of Abraham to be as numerous as the stars in time, not immediately. He would, in time, sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. It's Ephesians 5, 26 to 27. And it's saying that this is a progressive thing through the washing of the word. He's sanctifying the bride. So looking at figure three, notice the covenant's progression. Israel are the same covenant body from start to finish. And the promises are worked out gradually over time. This is something of what corporate sanctification looks like. So how then do we live? Here we get back to our psalm. We wait. We wait on the Lord to bring about the fruits of new covenant ministry. One of the main problems of the modern church is their refusal to wait. What do I mean? What drives the compromise of the liberal church? It's their understanding of church growth. Business models applied to outreach ministries pragmatism and how they will do their churches, how they'll do their liturgies. Instead of trusting that the ministry of the word will do its work over time, they get pragmatic. If we confront public education, we might upset some people and they'll leave. The church will shrink. If we apply the Bible to politics, we might upset some on either side of this political spectrum. If we adopt head coverings as a practice... They'll all think we're weird. No one will come. These compromises are all forms of impatience. Instead, we should do what is right and wait. Let God govern the growth. He will grow the mustard seed and live in the loaf. He'll sanctify his bride. Trust and obey. Lay back and look up. Apply all of Christ to all of life. And wait on the Lord. He will bring about an abundant redemption. He's promised this. And he will forgive Israel of all his iniquities. His loving kindness will ensure this. I want to finish by reading Ephesians 4. It describes the better ministry of the new covenant and the result of this ministry in the body of Christ, namely maturity and doctrinal unity. This will tie together much of what we have been talking about today. Though we disagree with Baptists and some Presbyterians now, the truth is 
God is working out a kind of unity that if we could see it now, it would blow our minds. And having the sure hope of the future for the church, it should give us confidence and a healthy amount of chill when we engage with the brothers we disagree with. God's working this out. It's okay if we don't agree, don't agree now. Our great, 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 great grandkids will one day agree. That's how the new covenant will be worked out. So let this passage be a final encouragement to you. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16. And he himself, that is the ascended Christ seated in heaven, giving gifts to men, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until... That is a key word. Until. Until what? He's going to give gifts until what? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See him piling it on there. So that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but speaking the truth in love, that's key also, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, his body language, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies According to the proper measure, uh, and according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amazing. We have a great hope for the church. So let's thank God now for the promises of His Word, and ask that God will cause us to put our hope in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have a love for your church and that you are right now ministering to us through gifts that you send to your people. Lord, this is a superior, better covenant. And where Israel failed, you intend the new covenant church to succeed. And Lord, what a great hope we have in that. We do believe you will bring about an abundant redemption to your people. And Lord, though we look upon it now and we see so much doctrinal rubbish and disunity and personality things and just strife and so much unrighteousness, Lord. We know that Christ is sanctifying the bride and he is reigning from heaven and bringing things into our path that would cause us to be tested and to be purified. So, Lord, I pray that we would be examining ourselves, Lord. If there is any sinful way in us, Lord, may we become pure and follow your ways. Lord, we thank you for what you have done in us already. We thank you for what you have taught us about your covenants and about your ministry toward us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to hope in you. May we wait wait on you always, wait on your work. May we be faithful to your word and trust that you will produce the growth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.